You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Well, hey, this is Craig Fuhr with Real Investor Radio. Welcome back. Joined here with Jack Bevere and Austin Carroll. We spoke with Austin on the last episode. If you didn't catch that, I would uh, tell you to go back and check out that episode for some foundational. And we're going to jump into this episode with Austin again and talk about sort of how he scaled his businesses and has pivoted to some others. Looking forward to hearing more. Austin, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, guys. Jack, good to I'm, see uh, you. I'm, I'm very excited about uh, about this episode. Austin, did a uh, we did a great job digging into his career and how he's gotten to this point in his real estate investing career. But then he's doing some really interesting stuff that uh, I'm excited to learn about, stuff that I you know don't know a whole lot about. So... Dude, thanks for uh, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. You did a great job of teasing some topics for this episode. So why don't you take us right into it? Yeah. Do you want to start with generational wealth? I think it's an easy, like kind of a fun little thing. Let's, let's do it. Cool. So, um, so I love that uh, you guys had Alex uh, Alex Hermosi on, on a couple yeah. episodes ago, and um, and and loved what he was talking about with like his fund is for generational wealth, and it's a term that was thrown around a ton, like inside of my spheres, like probably four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was always like, what does that mean? Like, what, it, like, what is it? Like, let me put, like, I'm a guy who likes to get like specific and put a model behind it. And so, um, for me, you know, people would be like, oh, well, it means that it's going to like, you know, keep going, right? Like you're going to have enough for your kids. And, uh, and they would point to a couple of different examples, right? The Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and, you know, all of these, like dig into those, like those are fun stories. And to me, I, I developed a like, specifically, how do I know that I've created generational wealth, right? Like, when do you know you've gotten there? And there's kind of two things for me. One is that two generations of, of my bloodline can severely mess up and there's still wealth to be distributed. So I got to build a model for that, right? Like they're like, you know, how does that happen? Right. And so that's my first question. And then the second one is, is how am I actually raising my kids today? I've got a two and a half year old and a, and a six month old. And, uh, and I think about that a lot, right? Like, is it important for me to be home at dinner every night, three nights a week, five nights a week? Like what's important? Like, do I intentionally spend the mornings with them versus getting straight into deals when my brain is like super excited to like go down with this deal? Like, am I taking the time to be present with, with them, you know, and, and how does that actually relate to generational wealth? So anyways, I just wanted to put some like for anybody that was like, oh, I like that concept, but like, I, don't, I actually don't know what it means and I don't know how to do it is like monetarily, which I think most people are talking about monetarily. I think about it in generations and how can I create a system that lasts that long? And then secondarily, how am I actually raising my kids? So hopefully they're not one of those generations that really messes it up. And then that's going to pass down, right? So anyways, that's, I, that was just something that I was like, I, I'd love to share that. So. And it's so obviously a concept that that maybe wasn't shared with you when you were younger. So this is something that not at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, what 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 is the model that you are using? So the so for the for the uh, generational like passing it down, one of the best models is a life insurance model. If you look at what the Rockefellers do, is they have enough money that funds life insurance. So you have a new baby, and and I'm probably butchering this a little bit. Like look into it deeper. But basically, like I have a baby. The Rockefeller organization, you know, fund, trust, whatever, buys that baby, like, let's call it like a $3 million policy and funds it for the first 10 years of their life. And then it like keeps funding itself. Now that baby, their whole trust is pulling from that. 
So now you've got a, ca a huge cash value from that life insurance. And so they can pull the whole cash value. It doesn't mess with the trust at all. And then they've got money to like get them started and things like that. And then if they die, let's say they become a drug addict and everything messes up. Well, the life insurance policy pays back the trust. And so you've got this like this really interesting like a built in hedge. If they if they screw up, they're only yep. screwing up their portion and the life insurance companies, you know, cut is the only piece that's left the, yeah. the system, so to speak. Yeah. And, and if you look at it, I'm pretty sure that this is the case, but like Chase Bank was like literally kind of meant to see like it was seeded with the idea. So like you've also got to have an organization that's going to last that long. Right. So, I mean, obviously, Chase Bank has done a great job of growing and or, uh, or it might be JP Morgan. I forget which one it is, but mm -hmm. one of I mean, they became each other. But yeah. So that's like the model for like it's not your most efficient model for your cash. Right. Like you could have a right. bunch of money and it would be more efficient. But it's a model that it, it lasts through generations. And so really good trust management and using life insurance in some smart ways is, is kind of how you do it. Chuck, I'd be shocked if you hadn't uh, done some research on this. Well, I have I, I've done some research on this for other folks. But actually, yeah, I'm going to uh, maybe steer the, the conversation a little bit sideways just because I'm curious. So uh, particularly, Austin, given your background, um, do you think like... How do you think the generational wealth is 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 self is the is that a as a as a valid goal self evident to you like that doesn't require explaining because I'm I've struggled with that a little bit that like because as you see folks who like you know hand down money to their kids and then their kids aren't the one who earned it right so they don't have the same like attachment to it the same sense sense of self worth through the accomplishment of having done it. Does growing up with money make you happier, make you a better person? Are you doing your kids a favor by leaving them a bunch of money? Like, I feel like that's often when we start a conversation, particularly that it has to do with generational wealth, kind of taken for granted. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not sure that the pre, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I agree with the assumption here that this is like a self evident thing that we, you know, that, that is a, that, that, it, that is doing good for our family, frankly. Yeah, I don't know. What are your I, thoughts on that? As someone, you know, as a working class, you know, as a working kid, you know, what, what do you think about that? It's number two. It's, it's the second part of that, which is how do you raise your kids? And I, I think mm -hmm. it's so interesting because I think about it all the time. I'm probably going to do more physical work when my daughters are teenagers so that I can do it beside them, you know, mm -hmm. to show them like, and, and there's schools of thought, right? Like you could be like, no, like we pay people to do that because our time is valuable. Or I teach them that you can do anything. Right. Like that's something that's been super important to me is that like I'm just confident, like if the lights go out in here, I'll figure out how it works. Right. And if I don't, I'm resourceful. So I think that's number two is like, how do you design something? And mm. and some like the Rockefellers are another organization that have they've designed family vacations, family things. Right. You hear the Kennedys and they've got uh, Joanna's port. Right. Like they always went there. Right. There were these uh, traditions and things like that that you pass down and that became their identity for good or for bad. Right. Like both of them. But it's, it's how do you actually, it's a good question. And I think the answer is, if you were just going to go put your nose to the grindstone until you're 50 and then have $50 million to pass down, yet your kids never got to spend time with you working or learning, you sub that out to, you know, whoever, nannies or anything like that, then like you're not passing down your values and that's how you get the messed up generations. And so I think you just have to be extra intentional, just like you're intentional in your business, which is hard sometimes because it's like, I could do more. Like, let me work 80 hours a week. I want to, you know, but it's like, 
you know, I'm rocking my, my six month old to sleep. And I like, there's a part of me that's like, this is a waste of my knowledge, my energy and things like that. And then you look down and you're like, but she's going to be so much more comfortable with me as a dad, you know, because I spent this time together. And so anyways, I mean, it's just something that you think about, but I think that's number two. So talk to so talk to me about that. What, what, are, you, what are your plans? I know your kids are really young right now, but you know, are yep. you going to, are they going to be going on site visits with you when they're five? You, you throwing them in the, the car seat and, and having them walk through uh, vacant houses and stuff. What's the, what's the plan? I already now? take them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Emery, Emery, my older one, she was, you know, we went and, uh, uh, so I, I kind of teased that we're starting a, a co-working business in a downtown Towson office building, which by the way, when we, when we talk about that, the, uh, the financing you guys were talking about and Jack, I know you were like, kind of probably like ribbing me in the back of your head when I was telling you the terms of, of the, the loan that we originally getting, it got denied. So oh, now we're really? at least option into the building. So like, it's fine. It's like the pivot, right? Like you figure out how you, how you pivot to it. So, but we were walking there, you know, it's 11,000 square foot floor. Like I'm walking there with her. We're talking about it. She, I, I bought a house that's titled in my, my name, but in my brain, it's hers. Mm-hmm. And I talked to her even today, right? Two and a half years old. I talked to her like she's making the decisions. There's a tenant coming in. They have a dog. Should we charge them extra for that? Right? Like how long should we do the lease term? How should we charge it? And it'll get a much, it'll get much more fun when she's like seven, eight. Right. And, and you can actually go in and, and I intend to let her make decisions with that. I think that's a, a huge part of it. She comes on showings with me, right? And, and it's just getting used to some of this stuff. But I think given some sort of responsibility, and then for me, a value that I care about is openness. And so like, they'll know how much money we have. You know, like I had a vague sense with my parents, but you know, there were certainly times where like, I don't know. And like, I want them to know in family meetings that we have, like, what are our values? You know, like, what are we doing with our money? What choices are we making? Um, and, and then, you know, part of my dream is like, I want to have, uh, rather than a beach house or something like that, I want to have like a, uh, a vacation farm that we go to. And so it's like, I was thinking about it because all the, all the rich people in Texas have ranches. They don't have beach houses, they have ranches. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, why don't, you know, like, why don't we do that here? You know, like I'll buy a Thermont farm or something like that. And we'll go there on the weekends kind of thing. So what if, what if she's, so I, this is not really a real estate conversation, but it, you know, it's, yeah. it's related. What if she's an artist? What if she has no interest in money? And, you know, like, you know, maybe I, I have a, I often see, you know, the next generation, they're, they're not their parents, right? Like I, I have a, I, I have come to believe that I don't think that personality is genetic. I think lots of stuff is genetic, but I don't think that, I, I don't, I think that you can have kids that are just not, you know, you know, the progeny of a business person is just maybe not a business person and there's nothing, and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. They're just not, that's just not their, the way that their brain is structured, you know? So, and I'm sure you've seen, you know, examples of that. Like, so what if you've, what, what if your kids end up just like not, ha- not having any interest in real estate investing or business in general? Like how, you know, how does this plan, how, how will this plan get affected by that? Yeah. I think the beautiful thing about real estate investing is it, it's not, uh, it's not trains, right? Like there may be like, you may never interact with a train in your life. And so if your family business is trains, then like, okay, cool. You might never like go down that. If our family business is, is investing, like not just real estate investing, but investing, what I mean by that is businesses in addition to real estate. And so businesses are people. So I want you to understand people and I want you to understand real estate because you're going to have to live somewhere. You don't have to invest. You don't have to do any of that stuff. But if you understand people, 
and I would love for you to do some something more entrepreneurial. But I'm totally cool if you don't. Yeah, if you're an artist, I mean, honestly, artists are probably some of the most entrepreneurial people as well, because like, <laughs> like how many jobs are like, you're an artist? Yeah, very few of them. And so, um, so I think there are the, you pick out those macro principles. That's what I care about way more than I care about. Are you learning how to uh, manage your expenses on a rental property? Mm-hmm. I just want you to know that there are expenses and that you can manage them. And then you can pick that up and put it anywhere else, right? In my life, I have expenses, I can manage them. I have to live somewhere, like what should I do? Like, let me just be smart about this. So I actually think that the the things that I try to cultivate more, and my wife is incredible at this too, like I'll give her way more credit than me. Like she teaches me every day, but it's uh, it's curiosity and it's confidence. And like, if I can if I can foster curiosity and confidence in my kids, I think we're gonna be all right, no matter what they do. Um- I would take a slightly contrarian point to what Jack said in, in that um, what I think I've noticed uh, as I observe people is that our gifts, the gifts that we are sort of given at birth um, are magnified in us, you know, from our parents. And so um, I find that my mother is very much a a person who likes to be in, in the, in the sort of the center of the mix and she's very ebullient and she's all of those things. And so it, it should come as no shock that, um, I probably have that even more magnified. Um, what I, what I don't think that I learned from my parents and I really appreciate what you're intending to give your kids is this sense of what are your gifts? It doesn't matter what you do. It's how these, how these gifts are manifested, right? And so if I look at my son, who's now 17, who I used to take into all of my flips and worry about if he's got half of his allergies from walking through dust-filled, you know, asbestos-filled, you know, like... <laughs> mold. Yeah. yeah, black mold everywhere, yeah. Yep. And by the way, teach your daughter never to pick up the bottle that looks like apple juice. Oh, yeah. Or, or do they open the refrigerator? <laughs> Ask me how I know. Don't open the refrigerator. That's a story over It's beers. not apple juice. <laughs> So, so anyway, what I find, what I find that my parents never sort of, uh, discovered in me or sort of, um, uh, helped, uh, sort of grow in me was, Hey man, this is what you're really good at. This is how God made you. And so what I've, what I think I've recognized in my kids is that, and I'm not trying to steer them into a, uh, vocation more so than I'm trying to steer them into what I think might really sing to how they're built. Yeah. And you, and I mean, there's so many different things, right? Like you get what you reward, you know, you're either providing a example or a warning, you know, and it's like, like I find four leaf clovers. Like I've got, you know, Jack knows this, like it's a weird thing. It's like, it's it's like, it's like odd. And my cousin, actually my cousin Gracie does it too. And I'd never seen it before. And then we're playing ultimate Frisbee. And every time we, we play ultimate Frisbee, Austin picks up one or two or three, four leaf clovers. And then I go try looking for them and I can't find them anywhere. And I'm like, this guy's got a fucking horseshoe up his ass. Or well, the, So here's the difference, right? I thought about that. Cause it like kind of bothers me. Like, why do I find it? Other people don't. And I think it, it relates back to your kids. At some point, I think I was rewarded because I found a four-leaf clover and my mom and dad were like, that's the coolest thing ever. So now I'm a little kid and I'm like, I'm going to spend hours looking. So like, Jack, you can't find them now because you're spending hours, you know, in like your late 30s, like trying to figure that out. Like I was like, you know, five doing it. And so, uh, and, and so I was rewarded for it and then I did it a bunch and then I continue to be rewarded, right? Like I find it and Jack's like, what? Like, 
how can you do that? <laughs> and so, uh, so my brain just picked up that pattern, right? So we're like rewarding these things and it gets like really interesting. So anyways, I do think that <clears throat> I appreciate you guys comments on that. And I do think that real estate is a great, uh, industry. It's broad enough that you, that it, that it requires all kinds of people. And so, yeah, like, you know, building, building a foundation of real estate knowledge in somebody is it, it's hard to hard to conceive of a of a personality that that can't benefit from that body of knowledge. So Absolutely. I do appreciate that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The challenge is when you try to force it, and I do think that people try to do that. Oh, you're getting in the family business. Oh, you know, whatever. You're going to run uh, this one day. Yeah, never yeah. works. No. Never works. I mean, how many how many uh, entrepreneurs do we know that have great businesses that they that they absolutely have pegged one of their children for, and the children want nothing to do with it see it all the time. So, well, um, Hey, Austin. Uh, so how, how, you know, from the, from the last episode, we learned about your early career, uh, worked at a development company, became a real estate agent, started doing house hacking, started building your own rental portfolio from that point. Um, and grew the rental portfolio as you moved to Baltimore, uh, you know, got greater expertise in the construction side of things. And then most recently, uh, you've done some pivoting into, into the commercial side of things. One, why, right? Like there's not enough, there's not enough houses in Baltimore to fix up. Like, uh, you know, so why the pivot to, to commercial? And so what, you know, what's exciting to you about that opportunity and what have you learned? What's been your experience so far as you've, uh, undertaken these first couple projects? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you guys are buying all the properties, so it's really hard for us <laughs> little peons here. <laughs> Competition is tough. Yeah, you, I'm like, hey, you guys aren't a commercial. I'll go there. Um, <laughs> oh, no. just wait. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh no. Um, so there was a deal. Like it, it was led by a deal. Like my whole thing is that the numbers will drive me more than like my buy box is more numbers than it is like. There's some things that like in our single family homes like. I like things with a front porch, right? Like there's some, there are some characteristics about it, but uh, largely it's the numbers. And so we had this wholesaler that sent this deal out like 10 times. And it was, it was as COVID was starting. That was our first commercial property. Now we had owned some mixed use, you know, two residentials up front, a salon on the first floor kind of thing. So we had like a little bit of exposure to commercial and I had done some commercial uh, working for the Mankiti group. So like I had a little, like very, very little knowledge. And this deal just kept like hitting me across the face. Like it was just coming up. And it was like, when you analyze tons of properties, you recognize patterns. And it doesn't matter if that pattern is something slightly different, like you still pick it up. And so that pattern was just the ratio between the purchase price and the monthly rent. And so it was advertised, I think it was like 1.6 million or something like that. And, uh, and it was bringing in like 18,000 a month. I was like, okay, like that's pretty good. Or I'm sorry, it was like twelve thousand a month, but it had vacancies. And so I was like, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. You know, what I know about commercial, maybe it's triple net, so like you don't have real estate taxes and other stuff to pay. Like it seems yeah, pretty good. Interest ratio is lower. Yeah. And I was just like, somebody's gonna gobble that up. And then it kept coming across and coming across. And I was like, finally I picked up the phone and I caught her and I was like, what's the deal with this? She was like, Well, we had it under contract and it came back out, you know, like I've had some interest, but like nobody's interested. I was like, all right, like let me go check it out. So I we went and checked it out and it was this really interesting property that it's probably the most crossover to residential commercial that you can have. It looks like 18 townhomes built and it's an upper and lower unit. And so they're like 600 square foot units, 650 square foot units. And it's just a bunch of those. Like and it was like office condo style. Yeah. Kind of it, it just the ownership is fee simple. So yeah, but like we could actually, we could probably turn them into condos. 
make some good money. So, um, and it was like dilapidated parking lot. It was stuff we knew how to do. Like I know how to get a parking lot done. I know how to do a roof. They're residential HVAC units in each one. It's just paint and carpet, you know, it's on slab, like it's easy. And so, um, so we were like, this like really makes sense. And it, I think everybody was kind of running from commercial and COVID and we just took a contrarian view. I think anytime you can have a contrarian view in investing, you're going to have some sort of leg up. Now you might be wrong about that and you know, you'll lose money. Uh, but if you're right on contrarian views, that's probably where you find some of your best deals. So whether it be a part of town that other people don't like, whether it be a block other people don't like, whether it be I'm I'm good at fixing up really, really dilapidated stuff versus a, you know, kind of lipstick runner. And so this one was we had luckily gone through the process for a property that we bought in our LLC with a community bank and just refinanced it. And they were like, we're going to do this small deal. Tell us when you get something bigger in Baltimore County. And we kind of laughed at each other and we we're like, Psh, yeah, like we're, yeah, it's not what we're doing. We're doing city townhomes. Like they're going to be small deals in the city. And then this deal comes across. So I send it to the banker. And so again, it's like the right things come at the right time. We were doing the right activities otherwise getting financing lined up that I could send that right to them. And they said, yeah, we'd love this deal. Mm -hmm. And um, and then we walked through and it had a bunch of vacancies they didn't advertise. And so it's like, okay, cool, we could do this. And uh, and so we negotiated that. And then the question was, how do we raise money for this? And we didn't have enough money to be able to buy it, you know, 20, 25% down and do the reno and all that stuff. And you and you never done a syndication before? I'd never done a syndication. We had raised a lot of private capital. So we had done, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars at different points in time that we raised. And, and we would just pay, you know, in the beginning, we we're paying 20%. You know, it was just like promissory note, you know, like we need to get something done. It can't be recorded against the property. We had worked down to like 10. Now we're at 9%. And, uh, and so, you know, people in our sphere or our clients, right, this is where you get some crossover. So our real estate sales clients, when they sell a house, it's like, do you guys want to invest with us? Like we, we have a place that you could put some money if you trust us and, and you've built trust through that process. And um, so anyways, we just went to some of our top lenders and we just said, everybody wants a slice of equity. You know, like anytime you're raising money, people are like, all right, well, like, how do I get the upside, right? How do I get equity? We said, this is the first time that we're going to have something like that. And so what we looked at was the traditional syndication model. And like, if I were just to like severely simplify it, from what I understand, the syndication model is we're going to go buy something really big. We're going to raise a lot of capital. We're going to charge fees. And then a lot of times we're going to make money on the sale of it, right? Like we might not even make money other than our fees for like three, four years. And then we're going to pro forma rent growth and forced depreciation. And we're going to sell it or refinance it in three years or five years or whatever. That's the and model. It's, it's the model. And the problem with that, and Jack, I've heard you talk about this, but like, I'm always like, I want my incentives to be aligned with my employees, with my investors, with anybody that's in my sphere. Like, I want our incentives to be aligned. And so like, you could see a world, and I think the world is happening right now, where syndicators are like, mm, I'm not going to get that out sale in two years. You know, I, I don't think it's going to be there. So let me give the, the bank the keys and my equity is wiped out or they'll get whatever they get. You know, like things like that, because it's not aligned. They don't have big skin in the game. And our other thesis is that we just want to own as much as we can. Like I want to own as much as I can. And so, uh, so we ended up putting a model together where we own 50% of the building and then we just priced equity. So I just said, Jack, I think that one was 85K for 12.5% ownership. Mm. So I'd say, Jack, you give me 85K, you get 
that's of cash flow. That's of like literally anything that comes. There's no like preferred. It doesn't like we're not getting fancy with it. We're just like you are buying equity. And that actually works really well in that like middle market. That was a $1.6 million deal. It's worth probably about 2.8 now. We put about 350K into it. So those guys, like I priced that equity low, honestly. Like looking back, I was like, that was that was very low to price that equity. Did you but that was you, just how we did it? When you price that equity, so you you're basically mark you're basically marking up the equity of the deal, right? Like there's, there's only, you know, you're raising 500 grand, but you're saying that 500 grand is going to come in at a million dollar valuation so that you get to keep the other 50% for yourself. I'm making up numbers here. Yep. But is that essentially yeah. what you're doing? You're saying like, Hey, for, <clears throat> for having found this great deal and for doing the work to add value to this deal, I'm going to, pr I'm putting a number on my off balance sheet equity, what I've brought to the table from a value point of view. And you're going to buy into that as just a money as just money. Yeah. And there and there's two ways to think about that. One is if I went the traditional route, I'm going to throw an acquisition fee on it. I'm going to throw a project management fee for the construction that I'm going to do. And you know, I'm probably going to make up those numbers, right? And then I'm going to throw my, you know, all, all the I'm just going to fee it so that I get to the same place. But right. you as Jack are like, "Okay, cool." So <laughs> at the end, I just want to model what my best case and worst case scenario is for my equity. And I like I'm trying to get them to like a 20% um, you know, IRR or something, you know, a couple other things we look at payback period. So those guys got fully paid back within, I think it was 20 months, you know, so like they've got that and then they've just got an annuity when we sell it, they'll get a bit big payday. And then in the meantime, they get tax advantages. So it, it was just looking at how do I most closely align my investors with me? Because if I'm a 50% owner in something, you as an investor are going to be pretty sure I'm going to be having your best uh, you know, best part of interest because like I've got, I own half of it, right? I'm going to be doing the smartest things for the building there. Are you taking any fees on the deal? So you, because you've got, uh, <clears throat> you indicated no, because you've got other sources of income, you're able to really just work this deal based off of sweat equity, not have to fee it, which is, you know, yeah, I do from an alignment point of view. I love that, right? Whenever I find, yep. a, sp find a situation where the sponsor's not charging a bunch of fees, I believe the alignment story, right? Because I see yep. that there's no way that he's making money unless I make money too. So, yep. yeah, I do I'm sorry. Like we do. We ch I do charge property management, which is the same yeah, as what sure. we would. Uh, we, but it's not an asset management. It's like legitimately like we're calling the dumpster company. And we're taking, you know, and that's our property management division. So, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. There is that. No, yeah, certain there, out of costs. Yeah, some of the yes. smarter guys I know in uh, self storage right now have just built very very simple models just like that Austin yeah. where it's like you know I'm 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 going I'm willing to give up 50% of uh ownership to equity partners um they've got very little of their own skin in the game but they're working their asses off to bring the assets up to par and to manage them uh to a place where they're either going to sell them at some point or they've just got way more equity so it's fantastic yeah. So, so you've, you know, you've made the transition with that deal into becoming an office landlord, right? And now you've taken that even the, you know, the umpteenth step forward beyond that to now your most recent uh, new stuff has been on the co-living, I'm sorry, co-working side of things. So like the high, I was going to, I was going to ask you, how did you learn how to become an office landlord? But now what I really want to know is how do you, how did you learn how to become a co-working space office landlord, which is like, you know, the operational extreme of that business model. Yeah, it's, it's an actual business. I think the, um, the thing with investing in general is you have to look at each of your business divisions as a business, 
right? Like I'm Jack, I'm sure you look at your lending business, right? And then your portfolio business and your flipping business. They're all their own biz businesses. And so the hunch that we got was that these 600 square foot spaces rented so quick, you know, and we were charging reasonable rent. And it was just the small operator that's like, I need a, I need a place to go, right? Like your lawyer, your you know, dentist, your accountant. They were like, I'm, I don't want to go have this crazy, like, oh, what's my core factor and triple nets and all this other stuff. Like, I just want a simple. And so we just took that model and we just said, hey, your rent's 900 bucks a month. And like you pay for your electric and, and, uh, and you have a parking internet. spot. And you got, yeah, you got parking spots. <laughs> so that was like in the office. Like we started to understand that. We bought another office, but the one I'm in right now, actually. And uh, it, it was near the other one. Did the same thing, like big deferred maintenance. So we took like our model of the burn method and put it to commercial. And then we saw the same thing. Okay, there, there is a starved demand mm. for people wanting to have small space that has easy flexibility that's not complicated to get into. And so it actually started with our third big syndication deal, which is a, a big property on Bel Air Road. And, you know, we were going to park partner with a co-working uh, space. We had worked out of a co-working space for a couple of years. And like, I like, I think that like my generation is the next one that's coming into the business world. So how do I like to work? That's probably how a large portion of the next generation is going to like to work. And so um, then you look at the options for people and there's just not great options. And so, and I can't find a bunch of buildings like this that have, that I can, you know, shrink down into a bunch of small square footage, um, that is easy to do like that. So we just said, why don't, why don't we do that has a large events portion to it. So we said, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to operate co-working. And the question was, we bought the building. It was a, it was a fantastic deal. And so, and we're, we're in construction for that one right now. When did you, so when did when did you put that under contract? Cause the timing matters here, right? That one was, yeah, that one we've owned for about a year. Um, and so put it under contract a year and a quarter ago or so that one was on the market. It was just terribly marketed wrong square footages. You know, it's about a 22,000, no, sorry, 26,000 square foot building. Uh, it was yeah, marketed in a great as location, like, though, in a, like a pretty a location, right? Uh, this one's on Bel Air road. So oh, the like, Bel Air road one is, it's is a long yeah, road. And, and for those of you who are, are not from Baltimore, I'm dying to know where on Bel Air road. It's right in the County, uh, in Overly. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It used to be the Overly event center as well. Oh. So if you, if you look that up, it's super cool. People have like, it was a bowling alley at one point. I mean, there's a, there's a, it's a really cool property. That's awesome. Uh, and we bought some properties around that too. So, um, but anyways, the, so that was our, we, we could have three things that we do. We either partner with a, a co-working space that we like, and honestly, there just weren't that many great ones in Baltimore. The second is we could uh, franchise something. And we went down that. We interviewed probably 10 different franchises. And you know, we're like, okay, should we do this? Or we start our own. And um, one of my agents is a very entrepreneurial guy. He's a part-time agent. And he wanted to get more into, okay, like I, I want to have something that I do entrepreneurially. And he's from hospitality background. So I was like, dude, you would be awesome to run this business. And he was like, I would love to run that business. Mm. So that was like, it was a little bit of the who as well. And so, uh, you know, so, he's... So let me let me interrupt you. Sorry. So like, because yeah. I feel that it's a very contrarian thing to, you know, we worked filed bankruptcy two months ago and they're like yeah. the name in, in co-working. And so, and I do think that like human psychology and, and market psychology mm -hmm. tends to uh, have this bug to it. 
So I would, I would think that if you ask the common person walking down the street or, or even, or even folks in the know, right? Even if you ask your local banker, like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm starting a new business. It's a co-working space. You know, it's, it's, it's a co-working space. 60 days after we work files for the only brand that they know in that space is filed for bankruptcy. They'd look like you look at you like you got five, you know, three heads. Um, why did you guys think that you could do it when those presumably very smart, sophisticated, experienced people with lots and lots of money raised couldn't pull it, you know, couldn't do this? What's different about you or your approach that you think that, that gives you confidence to do this when, when that model is, you know, in, in headlines for failing right now? Yeah, I think it's like a lot of things. Sometimes the first mover is just the one that like flails right? Like you've seen this in so many different technology types of things where it's like, okay, cool. The, the, the next entrant learns from those guys. And so a couple of different things. One is, um, again, it's just kind of like, what do I like? It's like the, you know, Airbnb, you know, like I, I stay at hotels now, right? So like, I'm not going to go do an Airbnb. Like that's, that's not what I do. So part of it was a little bit of market research. You know, we'd be at tailgates and stuff and we'd ask people like, Hey, like, would you, and, and resoundingly the, the small entrepreneur, the insurance guy is like, absolutely sign me up for an office in that because I'm in my house right now. I'm getting ready to hire somebody and I don't like, I don't want to go lease a long-term space. So I think the fundamental of it is just, you have the right location and you have the right operations. I think we look at, WeWork. there was a lot of, it, it was a thriving business. You look, you take like any location and if you have an appropriate rent and an appropriate build out, then like it kills it. And there's actually companies coming in. There's one called Industrious. And we went and like we, we looked at like 15 locations down in DC. Yeah, so we talk, did market research. Talk, yeah. Talk to me about that market research process. You were telling me a little bit about that before. And I was like, that's, I was impressed. Yeah. We literally just were like, okay, where is the best place for co-working nearby? It's probably New York or DC. Let's go to DC and let's like literally just secret shop them for you know, 15 different ones. And we saw so much stuff. It was so interesting. The, the takeaway was one, the model is fantastic. If you have energy, the right location and the right people working there and the right processes, we would walk into places just off the street and we would, they would never get our information. It's like that. That's a mess up, right? Like I'm telling you, like, I'm going to rent from you, right? Like I'm a, I'm a small real estate developer that needs space and, uh, and you didn't get my information. So so there's some like operationally things is that like most of them were changed and most of uh, most of the people that were in there were not the owners of it. And so like there wasn't that care. It's like the difference when you go to like a really nice restaurant versus, you know, an IHOP or something like that. <laughs> and so um, so I think the problem with WeWork was more so their capital structure and how they set things up and their growth and things like that versus the fundamental business. And how do I know that is because a company called Industrious was coming in with a better business model, renegotiating the rates for WeWorks and then taking over their business. If it wasn't a viable business, then some other business would move into that. It wouldn't be another, and Industrious is a great business. Like they were the best ones operationally designed, like all that stuff. Um, so anyways, I think like part of it is a hunch, you know, like we do, like we do make bets and that's a bet that I'm making. The bet is that operationally we can make that work. The numbers pencil. The bet is that I can own the building and be a great tenant. The bet is I can go buy buildings that other people can't because I have a, a you know, you have 22,000 mm -hmm. square foot of vacancy. I'm going to come right into that. 
Mm-hmm. And so, so those are the different make it income producing. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, it's a business I want to own, right? Like I would love, you know, we were talking about on, on one of the nonprofits that Jack and I are on. It's like, I would love to host you guys, right? Like in a really cool space that like is designed to like, wow people. And that's also going to be marketing for me because maybe one of those people is like, oh, like I'd like an office here, you know? And so I would love to own that business because I will use it, right? Like I'll have board game, monthly board games in Towson, you know, there. And I'll like advertise to the community, right? Like $10 buy-in, we'll do a little tournament style. So like, they're, like it's just like, I'm going to have fun with it. That's the other thing is like, what business are you going to have fun with? And so, um, so anyways, that, that, was, that was kind of a really long... No, I think that's incredibly interesting right now because uh, I think that the average investor would be like, you're going to buy office buildings right now and do co-working. Like, you're crazy. You're insane. You must be an idiot, right? Like, like the combination of those things, like the, the, common, the common sentiment right now is that office is screwed, particularly unless you're class A prime location office, right? But you're talking about buying like good location you know, real depressed price because of this psychology and then coming in with an operating model saying that, no, yeah, they just did it wrong. Right. But there is still, there's still demand for this product. And yes, it's an operator's model, but this is the way that I'm going to make buying this office building at 65 bucks a foot or whatever, like super cheap work, you know, when no one else can, because I've got an anchor tenant in my back pocket, it's me. And I can, and I know that I'm going to be able to make that income producing. And I, I just think that that combination is really intelligent, contrarian. You know, like I just, it's the right combination of things to take advantage of the of the the the, the sentiment going being the other direction right now. And um, like when we when we started buying houses, it reminds me of when we when we started buying mm-hmm. houses uh, in 2011 in Atlanta. Like we were, you know, keep you know keeping the the train on the tracks in Baltimore, but we we. Uh, Found about found out about the Atlanta market and started buying houses down there and went around to raise money for it. And at the time, you know, you couldn't get any debt at all, and raising equity even was like extremely difficult because everyone was like, "This is the worst time ever to buy houses." You know, what are you talking about? And we're like, you know, we just thought it was a fantastic time, and we made a, a you know, we, we did really well in that market um, because we had the because we were like, no, we've dug in, we understand how to operate it. Like even at these depressed prices, there is a market clearing price where these numbers do work. And if you, you know, and I think that, you know, and, and I also believe this about office that I think five, 10 years from now, everybody who buys office over the next couple of years and figures out how to get through it is going to do really well off of that. Because you know what we're not building anything of right now is office buildings because of this psychology, because of this sentiment. So if the economy continues to grow, which over the course of the next 20 years, the American economy, you know, population and economy is projected to grow. I have a hard time thinking that we're not going to need office space and particularly the model that you're talking about, which I feel is more demographically appropriate for, for where office demand is going to be. Like, I just, I just think it's very smart. I'm very impressed with it. And I, and I don't know anybody else doing it. So, um, I, uh, I'm, 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 I'm rooting for you on that one. I hope, I hope, I hope you knock it out of the park with that. Awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, the, the thing to look at is exactly what you said. It's the contrarian view. So like, I love that. But the question is like, what do I actually buy it for? Like I do, I wrestle with that a little bit, right? Like what is the right price? Everybody's like, Oh, office should be, you is know, like falling? 60. Yeah. Like it's yeah. it still falling. Like who, the, we haven't really found a clearing price. We haven't found a bottom yet. Right. Like it's right. still, there's, there's, there's an argument that it's still early 
to get into office. And I, and I, yeah. that I, that I struggle with a little bit. I'm like, I love the trade, but I'm, I wrestle with the timing question. Yep. And, and I do too, right? Like, but what I know is that it cash flows. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, it's like, if you're like, I don't know what this house should be priced at, but it cash flows well. Okay, cool. Then I like, that's where like, I'll live at peace in that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think the 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 last thing that I'll say about the co-working business is the the thing that I would love to do in business is to also start other businesses and help advise and invest in other businesses. You know, not necessarily like venture, right? But like, where is there going to be a cluster of probably incubating and in small businesses? It's going to be in a co-working space. And I'm a realtor and I do commercial real estate. So when they outgrow my space, who I'm going to like design the process. So they come to us to say, Hey, like we need some bigger space. Okay. Let me go buy that building that you want to go. Right. So like, there's so many things that grow off of it that it's like, I'm going to like, we are going to figure out how to make it work because I know the business model works. And so we're going to figure that out because that's also what I want to do in the future. Well, gentlemen, we have just a few minutes left here. Uh, Jack, is there any other thing, uh, any other things you wanted to share with us, Austin? Jack, we've covered a lot. Yeah, yeah, we covered a lot of ground there. Probably the last thing in our businesses that um, I think might be interesting for people to hear is, uh, and largely, you know, or at least partially thanks to you all, um, we're we're shifting some of our business to do more flips. Like I kind of talked about it a little bit last um, last episode, but the idea is that I always wanted to own everything. I want to keep it. I want to own it. And uh, and there are people at the on the end of the spectrum. I never want to own anything. I want to flip everything. And so, um, so some of your all's commentary on the economy and where values are, things like that, uh, made me realize we've got a process for doing all of this stuff. Let's just ramp it up and do some flips. So I, I appreciate you guys for that, like pushing me over the edge. Like I've always had kind of a little block on that. Like I just want to own everything. And so, uh, so I appreciate that. I think that's going to be huge for our business and other people might, might be realizing that as well. So. Well, you're obviously set up to find the deals and, uh, to find those needles in a haystack and you've been through the process many times. Um, so yeah, I, I don't see why that wouldn't be a profitable venture for you. Should be an interesting uh, year for finding deals. Yeah. Yeah. Well guys, uh, lively conversation. Austin can't wait to uh, come out in the spring and play some uh, ultimate Frisbee with you and Jack and find some four leaf clover. I actually love Good. ultimate Jack. You, you may, not, you, may okay. not, you you can't look at me and know that I actually love the game of ultimate Frisbee Jack, but I honestly do big fan. That was like, there, there was that older gentleman. I don't know if you're there, Jack, but this like older guy, like on a bike came and he was just like riding through and he was like, Hey, like, can I play? And you're like, all right, like this guy, you know, he's, he's like pretty old. He's not going to be able to keep a, up with us. Jack's like, Jack's incredible. He's like a little Wolverine out there. Like he like doesn't get tired and it's like, it's crazy. And so this guy comes out and he's just like throwing these like incredible passes. Like it was insane. Yeah. He's like, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. After, after we get to know him, super nice guy. He's just like riding through Druid Hill Park and literally stop or Druid Park and, um, stops and is like hey you know can i you know play with you guys next time and austin exchanges numbers of course makes a, makes a, a new friend immediately of course and uh the guy comes out and joins you know a month later and he's just he's showing us how to throw the frisbee in different ways <laughs> right. he's like yeah you know i i had a pretty like i had a pretty steady game with my college buddies for about 23 years and we're like what the <laughs> this guy is just he's 15 years older from anybody on the field and like the first in your first pick, right? Like dude's a monster. His name just happens to be Joe Whammo. (laughs) (laughs) What is this round disc thing here? I don't quite understand. 
Yeah, Let's yeah. just be careful on uh, how we handle the old guy things. Yeah. <laughs> well, if any, I mean, so uh, that's a it's a good point actually. If anybody wants to play with us, we'll start playing again in the springtime. So uh, find me on social, hit me up. I'll uh, I'll add you to the invite if you're in Baltimore and you want to come out and uh, enjoy some ultimate with us. Well, we ser- we sometimes forget this, but man, tell people how they can find you. Uh, you know, find the exciting projects that you're working on, things like that. Yeah, we are so. Um, you can find me probably Instagram is the best. I don't do a fantastic job of being on there all the time, but uh, I usually answer messages. So it's Austin Carroll, two R's and two L's in Carroll, R-E for real estate. Uh, that's my Instagram handle. Um, and if anybody wants to shoot me an email or anything, it's acarroll at kw.com, A-C-A-R-R-O-L-L at kw.com. Um, you know, I, I usually try to go to some meetups and things like that in Baltimore if anybody's around. But uh, And then check out our, our co-working space. It's going to be Haven Cowork. I don't think I, Jack, I don't think you knew the name of it. We've just been like, we're like 99% sure. So like, may, you know, maybe that's not it, but we got to do some trademark searching and stuff, but Haven co-working in Towson and Overly. Towson will be opening in like April. And, oh, nice. uh, so gonna and then, yeah, Overly will be a, a large events part too. Like it's got like a 3,500 square foot event hall too. And that one will be towards the end of the year. I may stop, so, in the, stop into Frank's pizza today and then hit you up over there and see what you guys are up to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, man, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. You're obviously a busy guy, but you seem to be uh, working that all out. And I wish you all the best with your two-year-old and your six-month-old. It sounds like they have an exciting future ahead as well. So thank you, Austin, so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you all. Thanks, guys. Jack, any last words? No, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Austin. It was great, great perspective and very, uh, you know, exciting and inspiring stuff you're doing. So thanks again. Well, folks, stay tuned because we have uh, lined up a bunch of guests in upcoming episodes that we're really exciting about. We're hoping they'll be as good as Austin. We're pretty sure they will. It's Craig Fear with Real Investor Radio. Thanks for tuning in.